So good evening. Congratulations having made it through day two. You usually hear the congratulations after day one and you think, oh, good, day two must be easier. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes sleepiness leaves, but restlessness comes. Or restlessness leaves, but sleepiness comes. Or something else that was unexpected. So this evening I want to talk about some of the challenges and the difficulties that arise in our meditation and on retreat that will be somewhat familiar, both theoretically and experientially to many of you. And it helps to bring awareness to these challenges because so often we think when we meet obstacles and difficulties, the first thought that often arises though is this must be a mistake. This is a problem. I must be doing it wrong. Everybody else looks really mellow and I seem to be one who's miserable and struggling. So it's useful to understand these really strong tendencies in the mind that are somewhat universal and can afflict us in any moment. The Buddha once said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but is obscured by attachments that visit it. Luminous luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but is obscured by attachments, tendencies of mind, habits that visit it. So I wanted to make an, an An example of that, so this is the nature of your mind, you could say, clear, empty, open, somewhat unobstructed. And then we have life. Mm, Maybe a bit of boredom, restlessness, longing for pizza, frustration with your partner, desire to go to a spa, And we put that in and we stir it up a little bit with the lid. And we see how the clarity is starting to be obscured. The clarity of our mind, the clarity of our nature. And then we kind of toss it around and mix a few more things in like comparing and judging and uh, why wasn't our retreat like the last one which was really fun and joyful. And we, uh, being clarity, mind becomes occluded and painfully so. And we want to understand how come, as the Buddha is pointing to, that the nature of our being, nature of our mind is clear, is wakeful, is awake, is luminous. Yet we keep getting caught in contraction and habitual states like the story Christina pointed to about the holes we keep jump landing in <coughs> or digging. How do we get there? Here we are in the beautiful countryside of Massachusetts, mild weather today, wonderful food, lovely people, pleasant environment, safe, protected, nourished, How come we're not serenely at peace and at ease? Has anybody had uninterrupted sense of well-being and ease since they arrived, since all their physical material conditions are met? Probably not too many hands going up. So we want to look, well, what is it? How is it that we find ourselves in strife, in struggle, in pain, in torment often? when the outer circumstances are somewhat supportive, conducive for well-being, for ease, for relaxation. And and again, to look, all this looking and investigation is done with with a lens of curiosity and compassion. Not to judge ourselves, like, hey, how can I, why aren't I happy right now? But, oh, what, what is going on here? What is interrupting the sense of well-being and ease? 
and peace. Thich Nhat Hanh once said, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. <laughs> and what mindfulness does is it, is it provides the clarity, the discernment, the awareness to see how do we live well? How do we live in a way that frees us from the tangles of suffering? How do we cultivate kusala, wholesome states of mind and being that lead to well-being and happiness? How do we release the akusala, the suffering, tormented, afflicted states? The Sufi poet Hafez put it in this way. He said, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. And you could say what we do with the hindrances and the, the, the obscurations is we mix them and create a big old soup and we eat of it frequently to our detriment. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, really we're primarily focusing in our practice right now on the first foundation, but of course we're always utilizing other aspects of that teaching, particularly the fourth foundation, which brings about a more reflective, insightful component to our observation. And the first aspect he uh, advises us to pay attention to is the hindrances in our meditation, which is also in hindrances in our lives, but particularly in meditation, because the hindrances are so clearly an obstruction to concentration, to uh, development of mind and mindfulness, and to insight and to deep absorption, which Sharon will talk more about tomorrow. And these, of course, as you probably know, are sense desire, restlessness, sloth and torpor. The very word conveys what that means, sloth and torpor. Restlessness and worry. And doubt. Did I go through all five? I missed a version. I thought I missed a version. Yeah. I hate that. (laughs) 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 Or as Snow White says, uh, her troop is greedy, grumpy, fidgety, sleepy, and confused. (laughs) So, and we may have predominance in one of those, or we may have a multiple hindrance attack frequently. No, noticing which one jumps out of you right now, that list, because you know, it changes depending on our circumstances, conditions. So you want to ask ourselves, how are these present? The Buddha asks us to, to pay attention. When, when, is, when are these present? How do they cause suffering? How do they cause affliction? How do they interrupt the power of concentration, our wellness and wellness of being. So the Buddha used similes, uh, which I quite like for this particular uh, teaching. So he said, when the mind is filled with desire, it's like a, the, the simile is an image of a, of a pool, pool of water. And when the mind is filled with desire, it's colored with ink, just like the green it's actually spirulina, I think I found. <laughs> and so it colors the mind. It colors our perception. Right? When the mind is filled with hatred and, and aversion, it, 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 the, the, the pool is bubbling, boiling water. And if we can feel it when we're feeling angry and rageful. It feels like our blood is boiling. We use that expression. And when we're in sloth and torpor, the pool is covered with a kind of an algae and it's thick with weeds, and it's entangled, and it's mired, just like our mind feels in that fog. And when uh, the mind is restless, filled with worry, then the water is whipped up like a, with a wind, and, it's, and the surface is choppy. So again, it's hard to see clearly with that agitation in the water. And lastly, doubt. Um, is muddied water, clouded water, again, so that, so that perception is obscured by the mental confusion. 
So in terms of working with the hindrances, the Buddha spoke about five different ways we can bring our discrimination discernment. One is simply noticing when they're present, which is sometimes obvious, but sometimes they're actually more subtle. A sense of dis-ease or angst can often manifest quite subtly. Or we can think we're being present, but we're actually in a slightly dreamy, foggy state. And then he said, pay attention to when they're absent, to notice the presence and the absence of things. So to notice, and I'll speak to this more at the end, to notice when the mind is free of the hindrances that allows the, the factors of concentration to be more present, to notice what that's like. We often pay attention more to the, what's gripping than with the absence of. And it's often in the absence of that we notice the qualities of spaciousness and freedom and ease. And then the Buddha talked about the conditional nature of these things, like he did with so many things, to understand what brings them into being. How come I'm suddenly, I'm one moment sitting at peace, and the next moment I'm in a ferment of rage and frustration with something? What, what was the cause that triggered that whole flurry of feeling? What allows that difficulty to pass? What antidote or what way of relating to that experience of frustration allows it to cease, allows it to return to peace? And lastly, what allows the future arising of that experience not to arise? How do we prevent that thing from re-arising in the future? So often I think the first, you know, when I talk to students on retreat, one of the first hindrances that I sense is often quite predominant is the hindrance of doubt. Is the, and it manifests often as a, why did I come here? What was I thinking? What are we doing here? Why does everyone look so unhappy? And what's the point? So I teach a lot at Spirit Rock, which is in Northern California, and uh, it's close to the wine country. Um, And one person once said, how come I'm not in a spa in Napa drinking Chardonnay? Somebody once said, I'd rather be at work. (laughs) Because it's hard work, right? It's challenging to be with ourselves, undistracted, really facing ourselves somewhat naked, nakedly, which we rarely do in our lives, particularly because the technology fills up every micro-moment of, exp- of space. So it's actually very challenging for us to simply be with ourselves, be with our mind, be with our heart, be with the deeper streams of our being. This is a cartoon that was uh, posted on the notice board in the uh, staff room, and there's two Zen monks and one saying to the other, I, I assume one of them is saying to the other, well, what, you know, what, what happens here? What's, what happens? And, and the, one says, the other one says, nothing happens next. This is it. <laughs> so sometimes we have a, a doubt wave because we react to the boredom. There's so little stimulation. You know, we're, we're, missing, that we're missing our technology fix, our tweeting or whatever it is that we're into. So the doubt can move outwardly. We can start doubting the teachers or the teaching or the place, the tradition. Well, who are these people? What do they know anyway? Does this practice really work? Maybe it's so old it's sort of out of date. You know? Is it really relevant to my life living in New York? So we can doubt externally, or we can, most often I think it goes internally, and we doubt our own competency, we doubt our own capacity, and we have a a day or two, particularly in the first two days, that are often quite challenging with sleepiness or restlessness. And if it can be seemingly impossible to focus on the breath for more than, you know, five is good, you know, maybe two is challenging, or maybe one's challenging. Sometimes we can't even find the breath or find a metaphrase. And of course, then the narrative comes in. Oh, see, I told you you wouldn't be able to do this. Your friends at the office said you wouldn't last in the silence. 
and you failed at yoga, you couldn't touch your toes, and now you try meditation, that's not working either. <laughs> and so we start doubting, and we go through the catalog of things that we think we've done, we've, we've failed at. We doubt our capacity to concentrate. We think, well, the Buddha was this amazing being, but that's not for me. All these other people, they've got some other capacity that I don't have. So very easy to, to, to watch that, the, the mind, the doubting mind, um, it happened to the Buddha, the, light of his, the night of his enlightenment, manifested as the figure Mara, personification in some ways of doubt. When the Buddha was, a, was, t- was sitting, sitting on the throne of enlightenment in Bodhgaya, and um, with his resolution to not move from that spot until he attained full awakening. And Mara, the personification of the unconscious forces of the mind, came with desire and fear and armies and lust. And finally, after Mara had given up all of those uh, attempts to, f- to d- distract the Buddha from his quest, he said, he came, he appeared before me, he said, who do you think you are? Voice sound familiar? Who do you think you are to sit on this awakened throne of all the great Buddhas of the past. And the Buddha, as is indicated here, as we talked about, puts his hand on the the earth and says, the earth is my witness. I have absolutely full right to be here, as we all do. So to remember that when when that voice, that insidious self-negating voice is operating And with the hindrances in general, as soon as we've shifted into mindful presence with them, you know, when, when that doubt story is running and we're, we're not seeing it, it, it makes us disengage from the practice. When we see it clearly in mindfulness, it's just another thing to be present to. We're not caught in it. We're not. Mindfulness allows us to disidentify disentangle from that process so we can see it with the clear light of awareness. And in that, from that, in that sense, it's no longer a hindrance. It's just simply a mind state that's arising that we're noticing that we're not caught in. But as soon as we lose that observing awareness and we get re-entangled, then we're suffering. Right? So there's a beautiful uh, phrase that I'm sure many of you know from Viktor Frankl. He's pointing, I think, to this one of the valuable qualities of mindfulness. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. So in this case, stimulus, a doubting, hindrance attack. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose. In our choice lies our freedom and peace. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. Mindfulness in a way, enhances that space, provides that space of knowing, discrimination, so we can disentangle, disidentify. So in that, the primary antidote to all these hindrances is simply bringing mindful awareness to them. And perhaps in this, in this case, labeling, oh, doubt, this is doubt. This is the mind state of doubt. Doubt is like this. It has a mental component like this. Sometimes it has a physical component of we feel collapsed or foggy or dull. <clears throat> and with doubt, often what's happening is we're trying to evaluate the retreat. Well, how am I doing? It's been 24 hours. How am I doing? It's 48 hours. I don't feel very present yet. My concentration is poor. I'm giving myself a D plus. And so we start second guessing our practice. And so it's important to just simply give yourself to the practice, to trust in the goodness of your practice, to trust in the form, in, in the tradition that this has been worked out um, in a way, for thousands of years, this practice has, has been tried and tested. But it only works if you fully give yourself to it. And then, you know, when you get home, of course, bring discernment and evaluation to it. Was that helpful? What worked? What helped? 
So doubt often leads to the second hindrance, but any the hindrance can rise from many factors. Um, and it came up quite a bit in the groups today, the, the, the hindrance of restlessness and worry. Restlessness and worry. I feel like we live in a culture of this hindrance. We live in an over-caffeinated, anxious, restless, fearful culture. And our work, the pace in which people have to work is somewhat driven by that restlessness and the lack of safety net and lack of social security here drives that sense of worry. That sense of what happens if I lose my job? What happens if I get a huge insurance bill? What happens if? Because it's real, because it does happen to people. So, and of course, it makes its way into our retreat. Why wouldn't it? Our life, we bring our lives to where we are. Just as the quote that Christina mentioned yesterday, there's a lovely quote from Padmasambhava who says, he was, a, he was the founder of Tibetan Buddhism, or brought Buddhism to Tibet. He said, um, if you want to understand your past, look to the present conditions. If you want to know the future, look to your present actions. Right? So, we can, so we're seeing how we are now, if with a lot of restlessness and fear and thinking and planning and all of that, it's because that's what we've been practicing. So you want to understand that. So we live in this, in this, in this, in our lives. There's such a lot of pressure, and complexity, and uh, speed. I was once reading. A, I think this was in the Times in England. There were, um, maybe in the Times here, and they had a, a piece about this Silicon Valley CEO who'd hooked up wireless in his bathtub so he could do his emails when he's in the bath. He could use his phone in the shower. And on the mirror, as Vanity Minute, he had a ticket tape stock thing going along. Um, so, you know, that's an, that's an extreme example, but I think, you know, the 28% of people check their email in the bathroom. Um, that, that, this is old data, so it's probably much higher now. Um, instead of peeing here now, it's, you know, <laughs> doing other things. Email here now. So sometimes the restlessness arises here because of the lack of stimulation. There's such a confrontation with the void of, of that that we, we start to get agitated. Or we get agitated in the sitting because there's nothing much going on. And that, that tendency, that force of doing, and the pleasure that so many of us get from doing, there's a, there's a kind of a, a mismatch or there's a... There's a crashing of those two forces of, of the, the stillness and the silence and the non-doing and that very strong momentum of doing. And so we, we feel agitated. We want to we get out of our skin. We want to run out of the room sometimes. Anybody here notice restlessness today? Just curious. Yes, a few hands going up. I thought so. So there's the physical restlessness and agitation, which we can notice. I'll talk about working with in a moment. And then there's the, 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 the worry, the anxiety and the worry. And again, I think this is a, a, a national affliction or maybe a global affliction at this point. Preoccupation with the future, the imagined future of catastrophe or fear. And that line from Mark Twain, I'm an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never actually happened. How many times have we spend, do we spend worrying about things that don't ever happen? Catastrophes, losing our jobs, money running out, people we love getting hurt. And then we, we agitate our nervous system and our body and our mind. Natalie Goldberg, the writer once wrote, she said, stress is an ignorant state. It believes that everything is an emergency. Nothing is that important. Right? So our, our fight-flight autonomic system gets activated so easily by an email or being late for a meeting or traffic. And so we live with this perennial state often of, of ang- angst, uh, angst-ridden being. So when this mind state is present, we also want to bring a mindful awareness to it. What's it like to just hang out with restlessness? 
again, as Christine was pointing to, to, to yesterday about uh, one of the challenging things with a retreat is we don't get to control the conditions so much. And that's actually always true with our own inner experience. Most of the time, we don't have that much control over what arises in the mind and body, whether it's physical pain, mental thoughts. What we do have some control over is our relationship to it. What is our attitude when these things arise? How is it to be with restlessness and just to hold restlessness with a spacious awareness? So the phrase I like to use a lot with, with any of these hindrances is, is like this. Restlessness is like this. Doubt is like this. And that phrase orients us to just simply being with that experience. A restlessness is like this. And how is it? It's like, it's like tense in the stomach. It's shortness of breath. It's feeling fluttery or it's feeling itchy. It's feeling desire to move. So, and with our, with, our, with our awareness, with our orientation to it, we also want to be mindful of well, what's going to support myself coming into balance. Restlessness is an excessive energy or an imbalanced energy so we, that needs to be grounded, calmed, centered. Right? So we want, to, we want to attune to what allows our mind-body to calm. Feeling the stillness in the room feeling the, the relaxation of the out-breath, feeling the groundedness right now as you sit in your legs and your feet and your sit bones, feeling the sense of earth. Sometimes it's giving the mind a spacious container, feeling the space of the room, or it means going outside and walking and feeling the spaciousness of nature. Sometimes we need to give our mind a vast sky because there's so much energy pouring through because of the worries or the fears. So to be, a, to be mindfulness is an appropriate response to the moment, and mindfulness is helping us discern what, what is the appropriate response. Sometimes sitting, sitting with absolute stillness is what's needed. Sometimes moving very swiftly to move the energy is what's needed. There's no one size fits all. For me, I use nature a lot as a way of orienting to calm, and I sense the peace and stillness uh, that's 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 present so easily accessible outside. You know, I think of that poem, the Wendell Berry poem. Um, uh, wild things, the piece of wild things. It goes something like, uh, "When I wake in the night at the least sound and fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests his." quiet beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. This is the line, I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of day blind stars waiting with their light. I rest in the grace of the world. For a moment I rest in the grace of the world and I am free. So it's a beautiful orientation, recognizing the angst of fear of my life and what my children's lives may be, right? How the future pulls us into this angst state, come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with that forethought. So that's possible, it's available. We step outside for that, find it within our own being. So the hindrances are asking us, as so much of life does, to, it's reminding us to remember that's not actually what's happening that's as important as our relationship to it. What is our attitude? Are we fighting? Are we resisting? Are we judging? Are we blaming when these things come up? Or are we seeing them just as the next thing to bring a spacious kind of awareness to? It's the manure for Bodhi. It's the compost in which we do our practice. We work out our deliverance. And the second thing is to remember always when we're dealing with anything that's difficult, to remember to reflect on the suffering nature of it. Oh, this is hard to be caught in restlessness and anxiety. I had an anxiety wave last year that lasted some months from various conditions. 
And it didn't just go away, and I couldn't mindfulness it away, and I couldn't meditate it away as we like to do, right? And it required a lot of surrender and a lot of patience, but mostly it required this kind of softening and a compassionate presence with the painfulness of it. Anxiety is actually one of the hardest things to be with because the very nature of it, the nature of being present to it, can exacerbate it or can bounce off. That's why the Buddha said sometimes to shift the attention away to something that's grounding is actually more appropriate. So to remember that compassionate kindness, the method that Sharon was speaking to today. So the third hindrance, um, and again, many of you spoke to this today, again, uh, the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor, the torpor, the sluggishness, the dullness of the body, and the torpor, the not wanting to be here, the resistance, the checking out, the numbing out, the fuzziness, the fogginess. I I come from San Francisco, I know a lot about the fog. And that's the state, we just, this fog descends and no matter what we do, we just, it's like molasses. You know, we do the wailing wall practice. I watch a lot of you doing it. And you're probably saying to yourself, I think I'm present. I think I'm with the breath. One of my friends hit the floor once. I don't know what he was thinking, but maybe he wasn't thinking. <laughs> it was painful. You know, and these, these energetic polarities of restlessness and sleepiness, we swing in between those two a lot. We work hard, we push, we drive, and then we collapse. And we do it again the next day, and we crash. And then we come to retreat, and we crash. We wonder why we're tired. Some people arrive when we try completely exhausted, bone tired, because we've been working so hard. People in America work harder than any other culture, work longer hours, take fewer holidays. And there's a sense of very strong work ethic here, but also leads to overriding of the body's needs. So often we arrive at a retreat exhausted, and we do need to sleep, and we do need to rest after meals, and it's appropriate to take naps to allow the body to regenerate. In, In Spain, I lived in Spain for a while, and one of my favorite proverbs there was it, it goes, it is beautiful to do nothing and then rest afterwards. <laughs> so this is what kind of we're doing here. We're doing nothing, we're resting afterwards. So let yourself rest, you know, and then and the alertness will arise. You know, and we're really doing both. We're resting and cultivating wakefulness at the same time. So again, the thing with with sleepiness, I think the most important thing is what is your relationship to it? What is your attitude to it? Because I I suffered from a lot of sloth for a long time in my practice, particularly in retreats. And I fought it and I hated it and I judged it and I struggled and I was miserable. And at some point, something, some insight arose from somewhere, as they do, and it was like, oh, it's not a problem. It's just sleepiness. I'm just tired. And it's okay. And I can actually be mindful when I'm tired. I'm just a little foggier mindful. And that's okay too. And suddenly the suffering went out of it. And of course, actually that brought more energy because I was less in contention with myself. And so there was more energy to come bring to the practice. And that, that whole sort of, not that I don't still get sleepy, but that whole constellation really uh, softened and, and dissolved actually. And that's often true with anything we're in contention with. We give it more energy and it becomes more of a bind. So noticing your attachment to clarity. That's often where the resistance to sleepiness comes from is, I want to be clear. I'm on a mindfulness retreat, goddamn. I want to be clear, right? But that grasping, which I'll talk about in a moment, is, is, is binding. It's painful. It's contractive. So in the, you know, we, can, we can bring mindfulness to sleepiness. That's a great inquiry. What is sleepiness? What is sloth? What is torpor? How, how are they different? How is one just fatigue and one is more mental and maybe more resistant? What am I not wanting to be with? Kind of ride the waves of energy, knowing that we have our peaks and valleys. You know, for often many of us, it's in the middle of the afternoon is, is a sloth time. So maybe we bring more energy, maybe we stand, maybe we stand outside, maybe you do walking practice. Different ways to energize the system. But I really, really encourage many of you to stand when you're feeling sleepy. It's too much of a struggle sitting. And you just stand, it's a beautiful practice. 
So the last two hindrances, which I'm sure we'll speak more to as the retreat goes on, because they're really the primary fundamental orientations to our experience and the moment, uh, the movements of uh, the way we, we are in contention with the moment, with either wanting it to be a certain way or wanting to get rid of it. Wanting something, holding on to something that we're liking, getting rid of something that's difficult, that's unpleasant. And so again, we're very familiar with these tendencies, but in a retreat we can shine the light of awareness in a way like in a laboratory and see how do these movements operate? How do they arise? How do they bind? How are they released? We can see this in sitting, in walking, in our yogi jobs, wherever we are. And we can see, you know, we move through life either like this with the fist clenched or released. We either grasping or resisting something or there's acceptance and ease. And our life is a, is a continual movement in and out of that. And we want to understand what happens when I get contracted, what happens when I get caught. What happens when the bell goes and I've had a very you know, pleasant meditation and I immediately get tight because I want my walking spot because that's my walking space out there in my favorite walking, my favorite walking room. Right? Or I want to get to the front of the lunch line and we tighten because I'm hungry. Or I'm worried about not being enough food. Right? So you can, what is the great practice to do is when, whenever you leave your sitting cushion, the moment that you notice a contraction of grasping and, or aversion, you pause, you stop. You, and you pay attention, well, what is that? Oh, there's a leaning forward there's a, there's a moving into the future for some, some idea, some hope I have. Okay, notice that. Breathe. When it softens, you continue walking. And then you notice someone's in your walking space and you contract. Or someone's taking your shoes and you contract. <laughs> or your notes and names on the, on the notice board. <gasps> there's a contraction of fear. Why is my name there? Okay. Notice that. Breathe. Take a moment. Walk to the board. Pick the note up. Continue the lunch line. And so, and it's a wonderful practice just to see how this, these hindrances continually re-arising, continually obscuring a sense of ease, and to bring in mindful, inquisitive awareness. What is this? And it's a beautiful practice. And, and if you, you know, we talk so much about embodiment, we'll talk more about mindfulness of the body tomorrow. It's all happening in the body, probably in the solar plexus or in the belly. So in the heart, you'll notice a contraction. And the more somatically oriented you are, the more you'll see when there's a contraction. And again, without judgment, oh, what is that? Oh, there's a little moment of anxiety. Huh. Okay, anxiety is like that. Maybe you understand why it's there, maybe you don't. You proceed. And then, you know, again, as soon as we shift from in the grip of something to awareness of it, we, sh- we move out of the suffering of it. It still might be unpleasant. It still might be difficult to feel the clenching of attachment, to feel the att- grasp, the, the clenching of aversion. But the more that's suffused with mindfulness, the less it's grabbing. So to look at how aversion arises, and I think, I think on a retreat often aversion can arise more than grasping for many people because we're not in our familiar circumstances, familiar food, we don't get to control the schedule or our you know, conditions, our environment, the heating. And so, you know, and also we're, we're, we're not, we're, there's no distraction, so we feel all the aches and pains of our body. You know, even if, you know, after a posture session and finding all the right blankets and cushions and props and little empires you're building, right? <laughs> How long can you sit before it hurts? You know, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour? At some point, it's going to hurt. No matter how great a yogi you are, it's going to ache. You know, many of you have chronic pain, as I do, and um, there's no escape from that. So... So we, know, so we bring that attention to the, the aversion to the body, aversion to pain, aversion to that negative stimulus. Maybe the aversion is more emotional, just to the, to the strong feelings that are coming up, sadness, 
Sometimes we feel grief when we come onto retreat because we realize how out of touch we are with ourselves, how disconnected we are from ourselves and what's really true and what's meaningful and purposeful. And there's a sadness and there's a loss. And it's actually a healthy recognition. Oh, I've really left myself. I really abandoned myself. And it's, and it's a joy but also a sweet sadness to realize, oh, to come home again. The practice is one of coming home. Or maybe we're feeling just the, the residue of emotions from our lives. Maybe some loneliness or sadness or grief or loss. And to, again, to look at our relationship to those things. Is there aversion? Is there fear? Is there resistance? To look at what the, what's fueling the aversion or the resistance. Often it's an idea. If I feel this pain, if I f- open to this emotion, I'm going to drown. I'm going to be overwhelmed. I'm going to be flooded. I'll never come out of it. Right? So we hold our emotional distress at bay, which of course means it never gets resolved. One yogi said very honestly this morning, he said, yeah, I was hating the teachers this morning or yesterday. You know, we can have a version to anything, including us up here. Why not? We're a good object. We make you do things and tell you to do things. And um, often what arises is um, the, what's called the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, which is we, we start having an aversion to somebody on the retreat. You know, our mind is like a little radar and it will find someone or something that, will, that we can fixate on. We get some kind of some twisted pleasure from it. Maybe they're breathing too loud, or they, they eat funnily, or they're wearing funny clothes. I don't know what, but it's amazing how the mind can pick somebody out and then fixate and create a whole story and painful torment. This poor person who's just innocently doing their thing, wearing bright yellow socks. <clears throat> Usually we miss, our, uh, we miss the aversion because we get so caught up in the object. And we so fixate on the person, the thing, the experience, and we actually don't track our aversion, our resistance, our hatred, our blame. So what I, what I want to say about this particular hindrance is it's really important to learn how to feel the fullness of these feelings. There's often a lot of social condemnation of feeling anger and fear and hatred and rage. Right? We're not asking you to act them out, we're asking you to feel them. And so the, so the, the Dharma teachings are a middle way between feeling and suppressing, right? Or between feeling and acting them out. It's a middle way, so we're actually feeling them without acting them out, feeling them without suppressing them. And so, and this can take some practice to learn how to open to anger or to, to immense sadness or to loss. But we want the, the only way we'll understand and liberate these experiences is by coming into them, feeling them, and again, feeling them with compassion, to move into our experience with a kindness, with a tenderness, particularly when it's difficult to remember, again, oh, this is suffering, this is painful, this hurts. Re-experiencing that loss or that ridicule or that, that bereavement, this is painful. Right? We recognize that it allows the compassionate heart to to come forth. I remember when I first did my retreat, first retreat in India in 91, a Vipassana retreat, and I was uh, hating it. It was so loud and I was just so overwhelmed with the sensations and being in India and being a little sick and being feeling out of control. And my teachers, and I, and I was really feeling, I'm blaming all the people outside the gate who were just doing their thing. They were living their life in the market and washing and bathing and tending to their children. But it's very loud, as India can be. And I thought they were the problem. This is my quiet retreat, and they're making all this noise, and don't they know that we're, you know, these holy yogis trying to meditate? And he said, well, go to the gate and just stand there and just, and just work with your aversion. And so I did. I went to the gate and I was feeling a lot of aversion and judgment and all of that. And then over time, I just began to, you know, because of aversion and hatred is very separating. And as I stood there and I just took these people in, I realized they're not the problem. It's my own mind and my own reactivity that's causing a sense of separation and judgment and pain. And the whole thing dissolved. But it, it first took feeling the hatred, feeling, acknowledging it, and actually feeling somewhat humble by it. 
And again, to notice what brings this feeling into being. What, what's, what's fueling the reactivity, the aversion, the resistance? It's usually some kind of belief system. If only this person had not done that. If only this person in the meditation hall would. If only my knee pain. If only something, something, something. If only that would go away. If only that unpleasantness. If only my chronic pain would ease. I would find peace. Some belief that we have to remove the unpleasant thing to find peace. The Buddha's pointing to a peace beyond conditions, as in a peace that's possible no matter what the circumstances of our lives, which is why difficulty in physical pain, emotional pain, are so useful to work with, because there are times when those things, we're, they're out of our control, and it forces us to find that resiliency and equanimity. And we can always use meta as an antidote, not an antidote, but as, as a support for uh, working with these things. And of course, it is a direct antidote to hatred and to fear. And again, to acknowledge when, when aversion and fear and hatred is here, oh, it's like this. And really acknowledge, how does it feel to be in hatred and fear? And in particular, noticing when that hatred is turned inward to self-hatred and self-destruction and judgment, to be really acutely mindful of that, the painfulness of that. And again, the self-meadow is a really powerful antidote. And lastly, I'm going to go through this somewhat quickly. Um, the, the, the contra force of aversion resisting is, of course, wanting, holding on, grasping. But in this particular context of the hindrance, it's sense desire. Desire for sensual pleasure. Desire for pleasure itself. We're creatures of, we're pleasure seekers. Right? We avoid the unpleasant, we seek the pleasant. It's hardwired into our neurology. So it's a very strong evolutionary force. We're just oriented to wanting things to be pleasant. The temperature, our clothing, the food, the environment, the safety, they're oriented to pleasant. And so we, 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 we keep holding on and moving and thinking and orienting our life there. And of course, in the retreat world, we're confronted with the fact that we have less access to that. As you might have noticed, there's not a lot of pleasurable stuff going on here. There's a lot of pleasure in, in our internal experience, but there's no TV or movies or you know, whatever it is, whatever your sense of choice so we see our mind moving in that direction. Right? How many sensual desires have you had? Right? Whether it's for food or your coffee or for chocolate or for sex or an experience or for touch or for love or something that's, you know, that drive that's, of course, taken up by a culture that's championing that cause that this is how we get happy by, have, by threading enough sensual pleasures together. Right? But of course, the... That would be fine if it worked, but it doesn't because everything's transitory and everything doesn't last. No matter how beautiful, think of the most joyful thing you've ever had in your life, the most delicious sensory experience. Well, it's gone. So to notice how your mind orients to, to, to sense pleasure here. Notice how it can take you out of the moment. And of course, the desires through the mind are somewhat endless. It's the, it's the attachment, it's the binding to them, the demanding reality, meet those needs and expectations. That's what causes the suffering. It's the clenching around them, the demanding that they happen, demanding that our food be a certain way, that our meditation be a certain way. And of course, we bring that desire into our meditation. I want my breath to be a certain way. I want my experience to be a certain way. I want this Dharma talk to be a certain way. God damn it. (laughs) Or we notice, because there's not a lot of stimulation, we notice we orient around other people and we start having desire for other people. It's called the Vipassana romance. We start start finding someone we can fixate on and having a little romance. And we get married and we go on vacation and we have children and, (laughs) you know, and it's this whole drama feeding this, this insatiable need for sense pleasure. And partly because it takes us away from the other hindrances and we think it's a relief, but actually it just, you know, what, what we feed grows. And so we just keep perpetuating this cycle. So a lot more to be said. I'm not going to go into so much, but again, just orienting back to how do we work with this? 
Again, we bring it into the light of mindfulness, light of awareness. Our desires like this, grasping is like this. How does it feel in the body to be feeling lust, to be feeling strong sexual desire? What is the energy? What is the physical experience? How does it be? How does it, how is it to feel longing and to feel like happiness lies outside of yourself in some sense experience? What's that like? And again, without judgment, to feel the suffering of that, feeling separate from that which will feel like it will give you happiness. What happens when you hold on to the sense sense pleasure of sitting? You have a moment of bliss or delight, and immediately you clutch because it's so good. It's like, finally, some yumminess, thank goodness. And of course, the grasping precludes it. So just to summarize, um, so to, to, just to bring presence to these hindrances, desire, aversion, restlessness, sloth, doubt, notice when they're present. Notice when they're absent. Notice what causes them to arise. Notice what causes them to cease. And as the Buddha said, whoever in the world overcomes desire so hard to transcend, we'll find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. So as we bring this mindful presence to all of these things, we find that spacious awareness that's able to hold all of them without being entangled. And we find that there's an access to a sense of deep ease and well-being even in the midst of these flurries. So let's sit for a few moments. Noticing the presence, noticing the absence, noticing your relationship to whatever rises in the mind, heart, body. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.